You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. We're now up to episode number 50 of Understanding God's Righteousness by Brother Jim Dillingham from the Cranston Ecclesia in the USA. This episode is called Faith, Confidence, Prayer and Fasting. Peter uses one of the keys to the Kingdom of Heaven to officially invite the Gentiles to participate in the path of salvation through Cornelius who was praying and fasting when the angel appeared. The combination of fasting and prayer is our Messiah's recommendation for growing faith. So, we have been considering the principle of faith, and particularly the advice of Jesus in how to grow our faith. The category of faith Jesus was referencing in relation to the practices of prayer and fasting is the confidence aspect of faith. The other aspect of faith that actually has to precede that confidence aspect of faith is the doctrinal aspect of faith, as in the faith once delivered to the saints, as Jude describes it, and as Paul explains the temporary purpose of the Holy Spirit gifts to the primarily Gentile believers at Ephesus when he writes, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect or mature man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The aspect of faith we're currently considering is that confidence category of the principle of faith. We've been considering the recommendation of Jesus, how to increase our faith through prayer and fasting. Last week, we considered the combined prayers and fasting of Moses, Daniel, and David. These were men of great faith. We concluded last week with the intention of considering how the first century ecclesia also respected the advice of Jesus to combine fasting and praying. We previously noted the statement by Jesus at the, as the, the, at the beginning of his ministry that although his disciples did not practice fasting, that they would eventually. In Matthew chapter 9, we read, Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but your disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. No man puts a piece of new cloth into an old garment, for that which is put in to fill up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, or more accurately, wineskins, else the wineskins break, and the wine runs out, and the wineskins perish. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved." Jesus makes it clear his disciples will will practice fasting after he's no longer with them. We certainly have that 
double parable explanation about putting new wine into into uh, old wineskins and new cloth patches onto old garments. These are lessons about changes in procedures. Yet fasting will not be eliminated as Jesus makes it clear. His disciples will definitely fast after he leaves. Jesus pointed out it would be inappropriate to fast when the friends of the bridegroom are with him, but would be appropriate to fast in the future when the bridegroom would be gone. Now there are a number of examples of this. Um, in Acts 13, we read, and they ministered to the Lord and fasted, and the Holy Spirit said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, Clearly, not only did the disciples fast in their spiritual service, but Christ responded to this fasting, communicating through the Holy Spirit. In Acts 14, we read, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every ecclesia and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Fasting and prayer are identified with the commissioning of elders in every ecclesia. This is certainly not a combination that is applied in our last uh, century of the ecclesial age. Popularity voting was not the practice in the first century ecclesia as it is in the last century ecclesia. But of course, we have no apostles to appoint elders. We have no Holy Spirit guidance. We do have prayer and fasting available to us, but I get the impression that brothers and sisters who vote for ecclesial appointments don't even pray about it, certainly don't fast and pray, if they even bother to participate in voting for ecclesial appointments. In relation to the value of prayer and fasting, we Gentile believers should take particular notice of the value received by the Gentile invitation avenue of the Roman centurion Cornelius. We know that Cornelius was particularly chosen by Jesus to be the point of official invitation to the Gentiles to participate in the conditional promise of salvation. Peter was given those three visions of unclean beasts held in a four-cornered sheet and commanded to kill and eat. This was immediately prior to the three men sent by Cornelius to request a visit from Peter to that home of a Gentile. Now, first, we should recognize Peter was assigned this responsibility years before, during the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew 16, we read this, where um, Jesus says to them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, meaning that confession that Jesus is the Christ, 
I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The rock the ecclesia would be built upon was Peter's testimony that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, as opposed to all those unliving gods manufactured in the minds and hearts of the pagans. But our point is that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter. Therefore, Peter would be a conduit for significant changes in that harmony between heaven and earth. Peter used these keys to the kingdom of heaven for two highly significant events. The first was the command to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ and the promise of the Holy Spirit gifts on that high Sabbath, on the first day of the Feast of Weeks that the book of Acts calls Pentecost, which was a historic prophetic portrayal of the promised immortalization of the saints, or at least the first one, at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom, Peter introduced this command to be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this was not the baptism of Christ's cousin John. John never baptized anyone into the name of Jesus. That was only a baptism of repentance and not a baptism testifying to any kind of belief in Jesus of Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Peter's command was new, being baptized into the name of Jesus. is exactly what Jesus commanded when he left earth for heaven. In Matthew 28, we read, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into that one name, that family name of God, and his Son, and his power. Now, this was the testimony of Isaiah as well, Isaiah 26, and in that context of a millennial kingdom prophecy, we read, in the way of your judgments, O Yahweh, have we waited for you. The desire of our soul is to your name and to the remembrance of you. The desire of our soul, our life, should be the name of God, that family name into which we are baptized. So Peter used one of these keys to the kingdom to initiate the command to be baptized, as we currently know it, and to offer that limited two-generational promise of the Holy Spirit power heavenly powers to be demonstrated on earth. The next time that Peter uses a key to the kingdom of heaven was in this highly significant official invitation to the Gentiles that they should be invited to participate in the hope of salvation. The procedure is really rather interesting. The Gentiles, uh, like ourselves before partaking of that gospel invitation, were paralleled to unclean beasts in the three visions that Peter experienced on Simon's roof at Joppa. 
in Acts 10, we read this account. It says, Peter fell into a trance and saw heaven opened, and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners, and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God has cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Those three visions of the unclean beasts, representing the Gentiles, are supported within a four-cornered sheet. Now, this is a reference back to the four-cornered configuration of the enlightened community in the wilderness when the first kingdom of God uh, age began. This relationship between the as yet unenlightened community as unclean beasts is an expression pattern presented all through scripture. There are four basic categories of beasts presented in scripture, which can be distinguished on the basis of their blood, or in one case, the complete absence of blood. The first beast category is the clean, domesticated animals that are acceptable as divine sacrifices. Now, there were only a highly appropriate eight categories of clean beasts that were acceptable as sacrifices to God. Now, these were the male and female steer, the male and female goat, the male and female sheep, and the pigeon and turtle dove, which are genderless, defined neither as male nor female. The blood of these animals were demanded at the tabernacle exclusively with no accommodation for slaughtering and eating by anyone. The second beast category were the wild animals that were designated as being clean by God's standards. These beasts and birds and insects and fish could be caught, killed, and eaten without contradicting God's physical holiness standards. But the blood of these animals had to be poured into the dust and covered by dust. The third animal category were the unclean animals, the ones that are depicted in Peter's vision. These animals were forbidden, absolutely forbidden from the diet of the enlightened community. There, there were no blood handling directions with these beasts as their blood, therefore their life, was inconsequential to God. The fourth beast category in scripture are the three vision representations with beast-like representations. Uh, these are the seraphim, the cherubim, and the four living creatures. These three are all representations of the immortalized Christ and the saints, but they are without blood. And we know this because Paul tells us very clearly that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. And Jesus defines his immortalized state as being flesh and bone, not flesh and blood. Each beast category represents a different category of people in Scripture. 
The domesticated, sacrificial, clean beasts represent the category within the enlightened community that are faithful and submit to the terms of God's righteousness. The second group of clean animals, whose blood had to be poured into and covered by dust, also represent a portion of the enlightened community, but those who do not, do not comply with the terms of God's righteousness. They are not identified by domesticated, sacrificial animals, but wild and unsubmissive, despite qualifying as divinely clean. This second group identifies those within the enlightened community who do not pour out their lives, their blood, in sacrifice to God, but into the dust, that cursed dust that represents death, as in dust thou art, and to dust you shall return. This is similar to the parable of the lazy servant of the master, who lied about being frozen in fear and buried the one talent he had been invested with into the dust. That third beast category was the one pictured in those three visions of Peter, the unclean beasts. Another way of referencing this group is the sons of men. This is as opposed to the sons of God, which refers to the enlightened community. Now here's an example of this direct association between the sons of men and beasts from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalls them. As the one dies, so dies the other. Yea, they have all one breath so that a man has no preeminence above a beast for all his vanity. All go to one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. The sons of men will die like beasts, but that's not true of the first two beast categories. Beasts perish when they die. The people represented as the sacrificial clean animals and the wild clean animals will not die like beasts. These people die temporarily. These will rise from the grave to attend Christ's judgment for the vindication of God's righteousness. This distinguishing feature of separate categories of death is referenced in Psalm 49, which is written by the sons of Korah. We read, Nevertheless, man, being in honor and abides not, He's like the beasts that perish, like sheep that are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is an honor and understands not is like the beasts that perish. Enlightenment is an issue that separates those who perish forever the first time that they die, just like beasts, from those who die temporarily, who will be resurrected back to mortality for judgment. Just as the four beast categories represent people in Scripture, those same four categories are represented by different plant life categories. Those who will be resurrected for judgment are identified by fruit-bearing plant life, but separated 
by the issue of actual fruitfulness. We see the enlightened community frequently identified as, as the vineyard, the olive tree, the fig tree, a grain field, particularly a wheat field. The enlightened and truly faithful will bear fruit to the honor of God's name, paralleling the domesticated sacrificial animals that pour their lives out, of their blood out at the feet of Jesus Christ, that, that, that altar of burnt offering. The plants from which fruit is expected but do not bear fruit, or perhaps poor quality fruit, represent the enlightened community who are not acceptable to God. Those who will be raised for judgment but die a second time forever. Those who die forever that first time, who will not be required to attend the judgment of Christ, represented by the unclean beasts. Now, they're also represented in scripture by non-fruit-bearing plant life, like briars and thorns and weeds. That fourth category of beasts, who those, those cherubim and seraphim and living creatures, are represented by the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. So when we read Peter's vision, uh, read about Peter's vision of the four-cornered enclosure for unclean beasts that he's commanded to kill and eat, this is something that should particularly draw our attention. That final statement is what God has cleansed that call not thou common. This placement of those unclean beasts in that four-square framework, just like the enlightened community in the wilderness, was a declaration to the man invested with the keys of the kingdom of heaven that he would be the one to open the door of possibility for inheriting the kingdom to the Gentiles. That sheet, defined as a frame of four, is a common numerical identification for the principle of God manifestation, foundationally due to the four letters in the memorial name of God and radiated through many other applications such as the four salvation events and the Creator's plan, that first being Jesus, second and third being saints in the seventh and eighth millenniums, and the fourthly all of creation when death will be completely eliminated. In this same context of cleansing of unclean beasts, we should remember how Jesus uh, did this during his ministry. In Matthew chapter 7, we read, Are you so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without enters into the man, it cannot defile him, because it enters not into his heart, but into the belly, and goes out into the draft, purging all meats? And he said, Then uh, that which cometh out of the man, that defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Jesus eliminated that dietary restriction of clean and unclean meats. He purged all meats. This is what he does with Peter in those three visions. So this modification in the plan of salvation to include 
the formerly unclean Gentiles, qualifies as a very significant event. So, why Cornelius? When Peter arrives at the home of Cornelius, the centurion explains why he asked for Peter to come. In Acts chapter 10, uh, we read, And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer is heard, and your alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Personally, I believe Cornelius was also that centurion at Capernaum that Jesus had identified as having a greater faith than he had witnessed in all of Israel to that point. I think Jesus planned to use such a man of great faith when he would be ready to invite the Gentiles to participate in his Father's plan of salvation. Whether that's true or not, the Lord responded to Cornelius, who was not simply praying, he was praying and fasting. The angel reported how Cornelius was respected for his prayers and his alms. While Peter was addressing everyone gathered at the Cornelius home, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles and they started miraculously speaking in other languages, what's referred to as tongues. This dramatically elevates the significance of this event that was initiated with the appearance of an angel sent by Christ to Cornelius who was fasting and praying. Exactly the combination Jesus highlighted during this ministry as a way to grow from a small faith to a great faith, from a tiny seed to a fruitful tree. Now this was the third and last uh, time the Holy Spirit was directly dispensed from heaven. Paul explains to the Gentile Ecclesia at Corinth how the power of the Holy Spirit served as an earnest, a validation of the promise of immortalization. This third Holy Spirit direct dispensation parallels the promise of the third immortalization event in the Creator's plan following the conclusion of the Millennial Kingdom. In 2 Corinthians 5, we read, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, in other words, if our body died, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven, if so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle, this mortal body, do groan, being burdened, not for that we'd be unclothed, we certainly don't want to die, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that has wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also has given us the earnest of the Spirit. The layered framework of the significance of this event with Cornelius should certainly provide an exclamation point 
to the faith-augmenting practice of combining prayer and fasting. Let's look at another reference to fasting being a practice of the first century, uh, first generation even, of the ecclesial age. Let's look at the advice of the Apostle Paul as he offers this to husbands and wives in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He writes, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife has not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband has not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one, one the other, except it be with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission, not of commandment. Marital relation abstinence is associated with prayer and fasting, which emphasizes the sacrificial understanding of fasting in relation to prayer. A Paul also references his own fastings in the context of the things that he suffered and endured throughout his preaching pursuits. The practice of fasting certainly began during the previous first kingdom age, but it was not part of kingdom law. Unlike Sabbath observance and feast week observ observances and temple worship and animal sacrifices, fasting as a divinely acceptable sacrificial practice was not discontinued, was not a point of, even a point of contention during that first transition generation of the ecclesial age. The eating laws of the kingdom of God were suspended. Those dietary distinctions that focused on the pursuit of physical holiness, but the non-eating ritual of fasting was not suspended. However, there is good reason to understand that fasting will not be expected during the second kingdom age. Well, at least by the mortal population of the world, because once again, the bridegroom will be with everyone. That was the answer Jesus gave to the disciples of John, the Pharisees, who asked Jesus why the disciples of John and Pharisees fasted, but the disciples of Jesus did not. Because the children of the bride chamber should not fast when the bridegroom is with them. But the mortal population of the world, those who inherit the kingdom, will not need, I'm sorry, the immortal population of the world uh, to come, those who inherit the kingdom, will not need to eat or drink. They'll have been born again into spirit nature of God by the word of God and be like, like Moses was during those two sets of 40 days and 40 nights when he didn't eat or drink. Again, it won't be that immortals do not eat, as Christ and the saints will eat, but will not have to eat, and there will be no hunger or thirst to be endured. We read this first in Isaiah 49. That thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed in the ways, their pastures shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger nor thirst, 
neither shall the heat nor, nor sun smite them. The elimination of hunger and thirst is part of the blessings of immortalization, of being born again into the eternal spirit nature. The day after Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 men along with women and children, some of that enlightened, covenant-bound community hunted him down and baited him for more miraculous food. In part of his response, Jesus confirmed this understanding we're considering in John chapter 6. He says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Jesus confirms this understanding at the conclusion of one of the continuing streams of visions that John experienced on the prison island of, At of Patmos. Uh, an angel identifies the multitude in white robes as being the immortalized saints, and we hear this same promise in Revelation 7. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he sits on the throne, and he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto the living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So the immortalized saints will not need to eat or drink, or even experience any compulsion to eat or drink, which is part of the sacrifice experienced in a fasting procedure. So there's my research on the practice of fasting and why Jesus advises the combination of fasting and prayer to be a way to increase our faith. I've researched fasting for a number of decades but have not found written commentaries on this subject generated from within, within our enlightened community. If anyone has any familiarity about where any commentaries on fasting can be found uh, within our community, I would appreciate uh, that source or sources could be shared with me. Um, I personally word searched through more than 140 years of the Christophian magazines and apostolic advocates, but have not found even a single commentary about fasting. So if anyone's aware of a Christophian-generated study about fasting, and particularly in relation to, to prayer, I would appreciate it if that source could be shared with me. Our next class will address um, trials to our faith, as well as an avenue of response to recognizing the features of God's righteousness. And this will be the principle of thankfulness, which is a behavior pattern that has been progressively dismissed, discouraged, even maligned in the society of the sons of men throughout my life. As one of the great challenges the last generation of the ecclesial age faces is how the philosophies and presumptions and behavior of the unenlightened community, the sons of men, acts as harmful acid in the context of the very opposed understandings of the enlightened community.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.